Okay, good morning. Let's uh, grab our Bibles. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 36. Genesis 36. We are cruising right through the book of Genesis. Some people said it would take decades to get through it. We'll see what the haters say when we wrap it up. Uh, It will be next year before we wrap it up, sometime next year. Okay, let's pray and we're gonna get right to work. Father, we come to you now in in Jesus' name and, and Lord, we thank you for your word. God, I'm so grateful that you didn't just create us and then leave us guessing. God, thank you for very clearly cluing us in about who you are, why you've done everything that you've done, what your will and your goal is uh, for our lives. Lord, we wanna matter, we wanna count for you, we wanna bring you great glory, and so Lord, would you help us to pay attention this morning? There are lessons to be learned, and and there's things that we gotta take note of, and, and there's truth that has to be applied to our lives, and so God, we're trusting that you will do what only you can do in the power of your Holy Spirit, God, I'm trusting that you'll take the weakness of my flesh and my stumbling lips and you just set all of that aside and, and God, you just speak your word. Give us hearts and minds to believe on it and receive it. Uh, Lord, we wanna hear from you and uh, so we, we acknowledge we need it and we trust you to do it. Would you work in and through us this morning for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So here in verses one through eight, we see the family history of Esau. This is all about the descendants of Esau here in Genesis chapter 36. Verse one says, now these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom? Edom is who they are nationally. Esau's family, these are the Edomites. Esau took his wives of the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Bashemath, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebajoth, and Ada bare to Esau Eliphaz, and, and Bashemath bare Ruel, and Aholibamah, that's a fun name, <laughs> and Aholibamah bare Jerush, uh, Jerush, and Jealam, and Korah, these are the sons of Esau, which were born unto him in the land of Canaan. And if you'll remember, we've already talked about this, but one of the things that we notice about Esau is he's marrying all the wrong people. Wrong is the next blank. Esau's marrying all the wrong people. He's, he's, he's you know, if you pick up your bride in the wrong place, you're gonna have consequences. There's gonna be results that you will not like. Abraham had told his servant concerning Esau's father, Isaac, Uh, He made him swear, Genesis 24, verse three, by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Uh, These gals don't think right. They don't do right. I want my kids to be trained up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, right? I want want my line to be God-fearing. Well, Esau, you know, dad couldn't take a wife from around here, but I can, I'm, I'm, I'm man enough to you know, set my course and everything's gonna work out. Esau had a lot of bad ideas. In chapter 26 and verse 34, Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, 
the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Uh, he absolutely married the pagan into these pagan families that surrounded the family of Abraham. Now, the typical girl, if you'll remember, the ladies of the land, made his mom sick to death. Uh, in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 15, we find out about the family of Heth. You know, Canaan begat Sadan, his firstborn, and Heth. And Heth prospered, and, and Heth culturally uh, influenced the paganism of this land. So in Genesis 27, 46, uh, Rebekah says to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these are, right, such as these which are the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do to me? You know, <laughs> I see who Esau married and I see how these girls are and if, and if, and if Jacob marries one of these gals, uh, my life is over as I know it. It's just horrible. And so they sent Jacob away. They sent him back to the old home place to find a bride. So, you know, later Ishmael takes a wife from his uncle, or I'm sorry, Esau takes a wife from his uncle Ishmael in Genesis 28, verse nine. Uh, so he's doubling down on, on, on picking brides from the wrong places. He's looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love. And it doesn't work out for him. Uh, can, I just, can I just say this? If you're looking for a wife in a bar, in some party scene, don't be surprised if you've got a bar fly raising your kids. Right, if you're looking for a husband in some party place, if you're looking for a husband in a bar, don't be surprised if you've got a drunk raising your kids. Don't be surprised if your kids end up messed up. And uh, I think that's what we're gonna see here this morning. You know, who you marry is gonna impact your walk with God, and it can be negative, right? You marry someone that doesn't have a heart for the Lord, that's gonna be a spiritual wet blanket on your walk with God for the rest of your life. You're gonna always be dealing with that. Uh, be careful who you marry. Who you marry, that's, that's probably, I don't know, I mean, uh, we could take an informal poll here this morning. I'm of the opinion that, that who you marry is the second most important decision outside of surrendering your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I married up, I just heavily counsel that, bros, if you can marry someone that's better than you, that's smarter than you, that's better looking than you, well that's not too hard, better looking than you, okay? You want, you want to marry up because you want your kids uh, to do better than you did. And so you're looking for, the, for this gal that you can con into marrying you. I mean, that's a, the Lord bless you in your endeavors. Okay, so I married up. And, uh, you know, she's brilliant. She's smart. She's funny. I, I, I like messing with her until it turns deadly, you know. But, uh, uh, man, praise the Lord, my kids benefited greatly based on who I married. I didn't have to worry about my children ending up cray-cray because, you know, who you marry, that can have a massive negative impact on your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. Typically, though, here's how it works. Like Esau, those walking, all, you know, they're already walking wrong, so they're, what they're doing is they're just compounding their problems in, Esau, in marriage, and that's what Esau is doing. He, he didn't have a heart for God. He's not walking with the Lord, so he's not concerned about marrying 
a God-fearing, a godly woman. He, does, he doesn't care about those things. So as a result, his family does not think the same way that Jacob's family ends up thinking. They don't actually value what Jacob's family values. And as a result, well, we'll see. It's the destruction of his family. Notice in verse five, and this is just interesting. I wanted to point this out to you. Esau's sons were born in the promised land uh, before he moves his whole family to Seir. Esau then leaves the land when Jacob arrives. Now, you compare Esau's family to Jacob's family. Jacob's family, his children were all born out of the land with the exception of, Jacob, uh, with the exception of Benjamin. And then Jacob moves his family into the promised land. I just thought that was an interesting contrast in the life of Esau and the life of Jacob. Uh, one is, just don't miss the picture, right? One is moving his whole family is moving into, they're moving closer to the promised land, right, the place of blessing, and another family is moving farther away. They're getting away from the promised land, the place of blessing. And again, we'll see how this works out for the life of the family of Esau. Okay, verse six, watch this. Esau took his wives, and his sons and his daughters and all the persons of his house and his cattle and all his beasts and all his substance which he had got in the land of Canaan and went into the country from the face of his brother Jacob. Why, verse seven, for their riches were more, I mean, these are great problems to have. Their riches were more than that they might, uh, that, uh, that they might dwell together and the land wherein they were strangers could not bear them because of their cattle. Thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. And then again, um, you know, God does not want you to miss this. Esau is Edom. So now think about this. Esau, how does he grow up? Does he grow up hard scrabble? I mean, he's a man of the field, he's a hunter. Uh, I don't think you would ever wanna mess with Esau. Uh, he would mess you up from the ground up six ways to Sunday, okay? Esau was a bad mammer jammer. However, he was a spoiled rich kid, if you think about it. He is, who's his daddy? Come on, guys, we spent a whole year on this. Who's Esau's daddy? I mean, we're three generations now of, of just massively accruing wealth, aren't we? Esau grew up spoiled rich in his father Isaac and grandfather Abraham's house. Uh, he, he doesn't lack for anything. Uh, all he's ever known is opulent wealth his entire life. So he's a little spoiled. He doesn't know how to view wealth correctly. And so get this down in your notes. In verses six through seven, uh, well really six through eight, we see that Esau's wealth results in him moving farther from God, farther from the place of promise and blessing. See, sometimes money is a curse. Sometimes money, sometimes money will mess you up. Sometimes money will destroy your life. I mean, what's in your wallet today? What's it doing to you? What's it doing to your marriage? What's it, do, what's it, doing, to your, what's it doing to your family? If, if your financial resources and your financial pursuits, your financial goals are taking you farther away from God, farther, farther out of fellowship from God, you'd do better to just take it all and support some missionary and then go help him. 
Uh, live poor but be rich with God. I mean, if that's what it takes to reset your priorities, you ought you to prayerfully think about that. What are your finances doing to you and your family? Sometimes money is a curse. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 18, verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Why? Well, he's trusted in his riches. All he cares about is his growing wealth. He doesn't care about, there's no dependence on God. There's no faith in God and his word and his will over his life. That's not what he's concerned about. It's what's my, what's my financial portfolio doing for me today and how can I get more of it? In other words, not how can I grow and get closer to God? How can I grow and be closer to the Lord Jesus Christ? How can I grow in faith? How can I grow in the word? How can I walk in the spirit? It's no, how can I get more for me and mine? First Timothy chapter six, verse six says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. And again, we need to make that note here. You may be rich, you may be financially blessed. Money itself is not evil, okay? It's the love of money that messes people up. Uh, it's always the people that, that, that know how to walk in faith. They've got the gift of giving. They're good stewards. They're all about God's kingdom. Those are the people that God will trust. Those mature, spiritually minded people are the people that God will trust uh, many times with great wealth. Um, again, does the cart get before the horse? Is the tail wagging the dog? Is money just another tool that you're gonna use for God's kingdom or are you going to sell out for the worship and the love of money? That's really the point, that's the issue. But the love of money is the root of all evil. And boy, that is true. <laughs> Which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And uh, it all culminates like this, Mark chapter eight, verse 36. You wanna talk about being pierced through with many sorrows. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? There are so many people that, man, their life on earth, it was heaven. And for the rest of eternity, they'll have that memory of living in such a heavenly way, right? For so many people, this is as close to heaven as they're ever gonna get. Um, but then, man, praise the Lord. Uh, this is brothers and sisters in Christ. This is as close to hell as we're ever gonna get. Man, praise God for that. But there are so many people that are just, they don't care about God or the things of God. They care what they can take from this world for themselves and, and this is as close to heaven as they're ever going to enjoy. And they're gonna spend the rest of their life in hell separated from God who loved them so much he did everything. He fell all over himself keeping them out of that place and they refused him because of their love for money. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Remember Esau's chief concern. Uh, we looked at Isaac being ready to give that blessing and he sends his son out hunting and you bring me that savory vision, uh, venison that I love and, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pass the Abrahamic blessing onto you even though I know God told us that it's gonna go to your little brother. So, so what was his concern? Well, your brother came in and he's, he's got your blessing. Don't you have a blessing for me? Don't you have something for me? Like, give me something. I want resource in my life. 
Esau's chief concern is riches. I mean, everything from the, from, the, from the Abrahamic blessing to what we saw potentially from the book of Jasher. Remember the story about him coming out from the field? He's famished. Give me some of that, give me some of that chili. Well, give me your birthright. I'll, I'll sell it to you for your birthright. And what did he think? If I die, what good's my birthright to me? I mean, he came back messed up from that hunt. <laughs> And then we looked at, it's not Bible, but we saw that story from the book of Jasher. It poses an interesting solution to that story. Uh, The Bible quotes the book of Jasher, and and so here you have a story where Esau's out hunting, and he sees Nimrod out with a small hunting posse, and Esau sees his chance, and he murders the king. He murders Nimrod and takes the vesture of Adam. Okay, that's the story in, in, in Jasher. And the way that the legend went is whoever wore the clothes that God fashioned for Adam, he's gonna rule the world. And so Esau's like, I'm gonna be king, I've got Adam's clothes, and, and so Jacob can have my birthright, he will be bowing before me because I'm gonna rule the world. Esau's a little antichrist uh, in training, right? He's, uh, he's a little antichrist in potential. And that's the story of the book of Jasher. But what's it, what, even there, what is at the center, what's at the core of his heart? I'm gonna gain the whole world. I want it all, right? I wanna rule from on high, I wanna own everything. And this is a problem, okay? God has to deal with that. Uh, A great example is that of Sodom, okay? Sodom was rich, and as a result, the Bible explains that she was full of pride, she was full of bread and entertainments. Look at Ezekiel 16, 49. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Man, that just sounds like America in 2022. I mean, we're full of pride, full of fullness of bread. Abundance of idleness is in us. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Look at verse 50. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Yeah, it definitely sounds like 2022. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. And you, you remember, we saw this story in the book of Genesis. God had to hit the reset button on Sodom and Gomorrah. He wiped them out. This region is now known as the Dead Sea. It is geographically the lowest place on planet Earth. So don't miss the warning for the church of the last days. Look at Revelation chapter three and verse 14. Unto the church, right? of Laodicea, Revelation 3, 14 through 19, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Why? Well, because you were haughty. (laughs) Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. See, your financial goals in life do they bring you to a place where you're dependent on your resources or are you dependent on the Lord? Your financial goals in life, do they hinder your faith and your faithfulness to God 
or do they make you self-sufficient, self-dependent, and make you, as a result, independent of God? I'm rich, I'm increased with goods, I have need of nothing. If you've got that mindset, uh, you are on a slippery slope to a haughty, right up, your, your position is one of haughtiness, and, and before you know it, you're committing all kinds of sin before the Lord. This was the path of Sodom. This is the path of the Laodicean church. We know from Luke's gospel the story of the, the failed steward. He failed in his stewardship. He failed in his management uh, of the dispensation of his master's household. And, and so the rich man calls him to give an account because he wastes his goods, he, he fails in his stewardship, and what happens? He has to give an account, there's a judgment. The failed steward is removed from his stewardship, and then obviously somebody else is hired in his place, and we see the whole Bible breaks down this way. Paul talks about a dispensation of the gospel, the gospel of grace being given unto him, and we talk about that in, in terms of this age that we live in, where the church exists over the last 2,000 years, we call it the church age or the dispensation of grace. Well, as you, if you study your Bible, it's gonna break down into, into clearly at least seven different dispensations. How God deals with man throughout the ages of biblical human history. How God dealt with Adam in the garden is different than how God deals with us today. How God dealt with the Israel under the law is different than how God deals with the church today. How God deals with a believer or the loss during the time of tribulation, well that's different than how God deals with the church age, uh, how God deals with believers in the church today. Uh, These things are very clearly seen in scripture. Well, according to Luke's gospel, the unjust steward is removed from their dispensation, and that's what we see in biblical human history. Adam messed up in the garden. What do you have? A replacement that takes place. God's dealing now with his descendants. They mess up. Reset button in Genesis chapter six. What do we see? God calls out Abraham and he's gonna form through Abraham a peculiar people. What do they do? Well, they messed up, they got hauled into captivity. They got a second shot and then colluded with us to murder our creator. And then what do you have? You have a a new steward managing the kingdom of God on behalf of uh, of our great God. And and what do you have now is the church age. What do you you think's gonna happen at the end of this age? We're gonna find out that the steward succeeded in her mission or failed in her mission. Is the church gonna be a great resounding success at the second coming of Christ or will she be actually a failure in terms of her responsibility? In every age, right, in every dispensation, those who were given the responsibility to serve God according to his word, they always, they always come short, they always mess up. Uh, in one sense, the rapture of the church is a glorious day, and the Bible describes it that way. Uh, It is a wonderful thing to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his glorious appearing that we're looking forward to. Even so, the last prayer of the Bible is, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. There's nothing wrong with this planet that the return of the king does not solve. It's gonna happen. Someday, someday soon, okay, the way it starts is he comes back for his bride, and these are glorious passages in scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Thessalonians chapter four. Uh, I get, you know, Romans eight. These things put the hair up on the back of my neck, okay? It's just like, it's exciting. It's exciting stuff. My mortal body puts on immortality. My corruptible body puts on incorruption. The dead in Christ rise first, then we which are alive 
we, you know, those of us that are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, we'll be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. I mean, just our vile bodies at that point will be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but I have a vile, a vile body. And with every year that passes, it gets viler and viler. I mean, it's just like gravity is winning. Everything's going to the, my, you know, it gets harder and harder to maintain a healthy weight. Um, my strength, it's harder and harder to hang on to my strength. And, 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 and every year that passes, uh, I become more and more a, a dead ringer for Mike Miles, which is just not good. I love him. He's my dad. But uh, if you could have said more than anything in the world, how do you want your life to end? The last thing I would have said is to look exactly like Mike Miles. <laughs> but that's where I'm heading. Uh, that's happening. This vile body will be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Jesus can move at the speed of thought. I'd like me some of that, right? Uh, it's like the difference between terrestrial and celestial bodies in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'd kind of like to look in the mirror and see a celestial body. That'd be pretty great. <laughs> That'd be pretty wonderful. My back has done nothing but hurt the entire time we've been working on this, this, this church, right? I mean, it's just been miserable. Uh, to be able to be pain-free, to be able to be, I mean, man, this incorruptible, or this corruptible puts on incorruption. I, I, I can't wait for that. So there's one sense in which it's wonderful, but there's another sense in which uh, we're actually removed to judgment. After the rapture of church, what comes next for the church? It's the judgment seat of Christ, where you give an account, not for your sin. That was, God dealt with that 2,000 years ago at Calvary, you're, gonna, you're going to give an account for your stewardship. Well, I love me that money, Jesus, and you know that. It was really tough not to give my life pursuing that. You wasted your life. You're gonna give an account for your stewardship. There's a sense in which the rapture of the church is the result of our failure. Don't miss what Revelation chapter three is warning us against. Buy gold tried in the fire. Invest in true riches. Get white raiment. Be clothed in the righteousness and the life of Christ. Right? Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Are your financial goals hindering your faith? Are they hindering your faithfulness to God? Or are you using them as a steward to greater serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, look at verse 8. Thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Okay, Mount Seir belongs to Esau because God gave him this land. Look at Deuteronomy chapter two, verses four and five. Israel is ready to take the promised land and, and so God's telling them their path in. And so he commands the people. He tells Moses, command thou the people saying, ye are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir. And they shall be afraid of you. Take ye good heed unto yourselves, therefore. Meddle not with them, for I will not give you of their land. No, not so much as a foot breadth, because I have given them, uh, I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. And so you look at the map here. Um, um, I don't know, you can see this big area there called Edom, okay? Uh, this would be the area of Mount Seir. And if you look 
up to the north, you'll see the Dead Sea. That's where Sodom and Gomorrah used to be. Uh, now it's the Dead Sea. And then just to the east there, you see Jerusalem. This actually, um, you know, look at the Sinai Peninsula here. Okay, if you look just off to the, to the left, this is where tradition says Mount Sinai uh, exists. There's a lot of evidence now, including in scripture, where it says Sinai is in Arabia. Um, J, uh, uh, Jabel El Laws, the top of that mountain there is actually burnt black. Uh, the granite is turned to glass, black glass. Uh, how'd that happen? Okay, so that's, the people of that area say that's where Moses met with God, okay? So there's a case for that. Personally, I think I'm in that camp, but uh, either way, whatever your, your reasons are, um, that's, gonna f- that's gonna form the start of the path of the second advent. I want you to keep that in mind. Basically, Jesus starts from the south, comes up through Edom, okay, stays on the east side of this rift, of this valley, comes up through there, and then crosses over just north of the Dead Sea into Jerusalem where he will then defeat, that's where the final battle takes place, the Antichrist is defeated, and from Jerusalem, the creator, the creator will reign on earth for a thousand years. So keep that in the back of your mind because we're gonna come back to that here in just a second. So this is a place that the Horems used to dwell, according to verse 12 of Deuteronomy 2. Ed, uh, you know, Edom or Esau's family, they conquer the Horems. Well, God did it. God did it for them in verse Deuteronomy 2, verse 22. And the Edomites took that land. Um, Lot's descendants, Moab, they took Ar. And uh, you read all about that there in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Okay, point number five, verse 8. Esau is Edom. So we're talking about Esau's descendants now as a nationality. In Genesis 25, 30, Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And again, that word Edom comes from the word Adam, A-D-O-M. And yes, it is closely related to the word Adam because there's a focus there, there's a picture of Edom being focused on who they are in the flesh, right? As physical descendants of Adam. And it means red or ruddy. Uh, and that's what, the, that's what the, the, the land that they live in looks like. The short brush gives it a red, hairy appearance uh, in the land. Edom comes from his love of this red pottage, according to Genesis 25, 30. And it's remembered against them as a reproach. That is what I want you to keep in mind. So the Edomites, they've always been a thorn in the side of Israel. They've always been hostile to Israel. And as a result, God takes a very dim view. So keep a finger here in Genesis chapter 36 and turn to the book of Obadiah. I want you to see what the problem and the result of Esau's enmity against Jacob, the Edomites' hostility toward Israel, what that brings them. Obadiah, let's pick it up in verse three. What's the claim against the Edomites? Well, it's the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, hath deceived thee. Well, that was Sodom's problem, right? Remember, they were haughty and committed abomination before God, so therefore he took them away as he saw good. 
Ezekiel 16, verse 50. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. Uh, yeah, you're, you, you dwell on high. You're living in Mount Seir, verse three. But you're saying in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Like we're, we're bad mammer jammers and nobody better mess with us. We've got the high ground. We're ruling from on. Oh, it kind of sounds like somebody saying that he would have a throne on high. Right, they've got the same mentality that you see in Isaiah chapter 14. Though thou exalt thyself as an eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. That's exactly what he told Lucifer in Isaiah 14. In verse 10, again, the the problem is the violence against their brother Jacob. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. And then in verses 12 through 14, they were rejoicing over God's judgment of Israel and Judah. They rejoiced, and God's saying, you shouldn't have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldest thou stood in the crossway to cut off those that did escape. Like you helped, they're your cousin, they're your brother, right? Israel is Edom's brother and you helped destroy them. So what's the result? Look down in verse 15. For the day of the Lord, that phrase in your Bible, the day of the Lord, that is always a hack to recognize you've got some insight or some direct prophecy about the second advent. A day, the day of the Lord is not even, again, the second coming of the Lord, we now know it comes in two parts, right? The first part is in secret. Christ takes his bride out of the earth, but then he shows up publicly to rule and reign. And this is a terrible day. This is a day that begins in darkness. Uh, that's, how day, that's how days start. They always start in darkness. And then the day star arises, and then there's light for that day, and that's the picture of the thousand year reign of the Lord. And so, you know, the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ to rule and reign is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink and they shall swallow down and they shall be as though they had not been. So there is a warning in Obadiah, and you read the whole book, okay? It's a short read, it's good homework. You get, the, you get the destiny of the Edomites in this book, Israel's brother, and God's saying he's gonna destroy them. Again, um, we're gonna be back in Genesis 36 in a minute. Turn to Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah chapter 49. Man, it's good to hear all the pages turning. With the advent of PowerPoint, we just don't have enough of that. Jeremiah 49. And here we see the prophecy against Edom in verse seven. He says, concerning Edom, thus saith the Lord of hosts, is there wisdom no more in Teman? Teman's a key word, okay? Is counsel perished from the prudent? Is there wisdom vanished? Flee ye, turn back. Dwell deep, O inhabitants, inhabitants of Dedan, that's another key city. For I will bring calamity of Esau upon him, the time that I will visit him, 
if grape gatherers come to thee, would they not leave some gleaning grapes? If thieves by night, will they destroy till they have enough? But I have made Esau bear. I have uncovered his secret places and he shall not be able to hide himself. His seed is spoiled and his brethren and his neighbors and he is not. Leave thy, children, leave thy fatherless children, I will preserve them alive and let thy widows trust in me. For thus saith the Lord, behold, they whose judgment was not to drink of the cup have assuredly, assuredly drunken. And thou art he that shall altogether go unpunished. Thou shalt not go unpunished, but thou shalt surely drink of it. For I have sworn by myself, saith the Lord, that Basra shall become a desolation, another key city. Basra is an Edom. A reproach, a waste, and a curse, and all the cities thereof shall be perpetual wastes. And so again, he's, you know, look, in, look down in verse 16. You've been doing wickedly. You think you're indestructible. You live in the high places. You're like an eagle. I'll bring, ye th- I'll bring thee down from thence, saith the Lord. Verse 17, also Edom shall be a desolation. Everyone that goeth by it shall be astonished and shall hiss at all the plagues thereof. And, in the, and as in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, there it is again, that connection to Sodom and Gomorrah to Edom. Remember Sodom's problem, rich and increased with goods, full of bread, they got haughty and they committed abominations. That's exactly what Esau does. He's rich, he's spoiled rotten. All he wants to do is rule from on high. He's haughty and he commits abominations against Israel. And so God's judging him for it. As in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighbor cities thereof, saith the Lord, no man shall abide there. Nobody's gonna live in Edom after I'm done with you. Neither shall a son of man dwell in it. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the dwelling of Jordan against the inhabitation of the strong. Verse 20, therefore hear the counsel of the Lord that he hath taken against Edom and his purposes that he purposed against the inhabitants of Teman. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Look at this, verse 21. The earth is moved at the noise of their fall, at the cry. The noise thereof was heard in the Red Sea. Again, Edom is close to the Red Sea. Behold, he shall come up and fly as an eagle and spread his wings over Basra. There it is again, that chief city in Edom. And at that day shall the heart of the mighty men of Edom be as the heart of a woman in her pangs. It's gonna be tough. Look at Isaiah 63. Go ahead and turn to Isaiah 63. Again, Isaiah 63, referencing the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ to destroy the enemies of Christ and Israel. Look at how it's described. Isaiah 63, verse one. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? Oh, okay, so on the second advent, Christ is on his way to Jerusalem. He stops off for a shopping spree in Edom, in Basra, to get some dyed garments. Is that what happens? No, that's not what happens. This is tough stuff, man. This is that, uh, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Christ is coming to deliver Israel. He's being described here that I speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? Here's the answer, verse three. I have trodden in the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger, 
and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my garments, for the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury had upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. So here is this people that's living on high. Their heart is lifted up with pride. They're haughty. They have a desire. Esau has a desire to rule from on high. And so he despises Christ. He despises his anointed. He despises the people of Israel. He despises the things of God. And God says, I'm going to wipe you out. And everybody hates this about the Lord Jesus Christ. They think he's, he's just this brutal mass murderer. Um, from the beginning, all God has ever done is warn us that the wages of sin is death. That's all he's ever done, is warn us that the wages of sin is We started the war with God. We're the ones who are at enmity with him. And over and over he's pled, he sends prophets he sends apostles, right? He sends more prophets. And all that humanity has ever done is kill them. <laughs> That's been our response to God's message, murder the messenger. Uh, we're on our way to another massive round of that in human history. You know, God loves the world. He's not willing that any would perish. But mark it down. If you want to make yourself the enemy of God, you'll have what you want. I mean, read Psalms 2. Read Psalms 1 and 2. It ought to make you tremble. Look at the contrast in Psalms 1 and 2. The day of vengeance is coming. What, is, what does Jesus say in his word? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Now, he loves the world. He's not willing that any would perish. He so means that, he proves it at Calvary. God gave his life so that nobody on this planet should ever have to lose it. But if you want to stay the enemy of God, well then, that's your choice. You have a free will. You can make yourself the enemy of God. You will not win. You will spend eternity separate from a God who loved you so much, he died for you to keep you out of hell. And yet, you'll have that place there if that's what you want. Jesus, in his second coming, wipes out Edom on his way to take care of the Antichrist. Who is this that comes from Basra? What's that red, red fringe on your white garments? Where did that come from? Oh yeah, I stomped them out. The Lord says, I mean, look, read the book of Jude. Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000s of his saints. Those who will rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom return with him. What does he say to them? You wait over there. I have a job that I have to do in Edom. And he literally takes out Jacob's brother. Vengeance is a terrible thing. And God alone reserves the right to it. He loves the world. He's not willing that any would perish. And yet, if that is your choice, that's what you will have. My fury had upheld me. I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. It's exactly what he told Lucifer. Read Isaiah 14. Five times he says, I will take what belongs to God alone. I deserve it. I'm gonna rule from on high, just like God does. God says, no, you won't. You'll be brought down to hell. And that's his choice. Man, I'm praying. If you're here today and you're an enemy of God, give up, stop fighting. Don't choose his wrath. Do what he's calling you to do. Just humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Repent of your enmity against God. 
Call on God for mercy and forgiveness of your sin. Trust on the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for you so that you wouldn't, have to su- you wouldn't have to suffer God's righteous wrath in the judgment that's to come. You say, Pastor, you're talking like a crazy person. No, I'm telling you what the Bible says. This book is the word of God. I believe it with all my heart. It's like, uh, who was it? Uh, Sam, well, he's a famous preacher from the Philadelphian church age. I can't remember Sam's last name. Sam, ah, anyway, he says, uh, you know, the Bible says that Jonah swallowed the, or, or, I'm sorry, the whale swallowed Jonah. <laughs> I'm giving away the punchline. The Bible says that the whale swallowed Jonah, but if it said that Jonah swallowed the whale, I'd believe that because God said it. Let God be true and you know the rest. Okay, verses one through eight, deal with the generations of Esau. Right, we see that looked at personally in Canaan. Verses nine through 43 looks at them politically from Mount Seir, from their, the, the place that God gave them uh, in Edom. So we're talking about the heir's political history. And the genealogy of Esau is given in tears. I'm gonna let you read through all of the names, but here's how it breaks down. His first three wives, you got the two Hittite wives and the daughter from Ishmael. And then you see Amalek is the son of a concubine in verses nine through 14. Then you see the clan names of the Bedouin groups in verses 15 through 19. And then there's a fourth tier of genealogy that tells us that Esau disposed the Horites or the Horem who lived there before him. But his children intermarry with them in verses 20 through 30. And then you see there are eight elected Elected, okay, these are chieftain kings. They're not dynastic kings, but elected chieftain kings that reign in Edom before Israel establishes their monarchy in verses 31 through 39. Uh, Verse 31 says, these are the kings that reigned in the land of Edom, therefore, right? Before there reigned any king over the children of Israel. So before Israel has Saul, they're already doing, Edom's already doing the king thing. They've got eight kings. And then the final group is tribal chiefs, and that's arranged by their location, verses 40 through 43. These are the names of the dukes that came out of Esau, according to their families. I mean, these guys are all about royalty. They've got kings and dukes. Um, You know, Britain was super late to the game. These are the names of the dukes that came out of Esau according to their families, and they're listed there. Uh, Again, notice in verse 42, Duke Teman. He would be the founder of the city of Teman. And they're listed according, verse verse 43, according to their habitations and the land of their possession. He is Esau, the father of the Edomites. Uh, Teman is the hometown of Job. If you read the book of Job, uh, that's where Job would hail from. Point number two, Esau and his sons are men of the world that get their portion from this life. That's the picture that we're seeing here today. Uh, they, this is as close to heaven as they get. Psalm 17 verse 13 says, Arise, O Lord, disappoint him, cast him down. Deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword. From men which are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world which have their portion in this life whose belly and whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure. They're full of children. 
and leave the rest of their substances to their babes. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. So there it is right there. You gotta decide how you're gonna live the life that God's given you. I mean, what are you pursuing in this life? Fulfillment by going after and getting your portion from this world, right? By fulfillment of the flesh? Or is it by conformity to Christ? Conformity to Christ. I will, as for me, verse 15, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Man, that's what the believer longs for, to have our, our vile bodies transformed, right? Fashioned like unto his glorious body. Uh, for us to be, like Romans 8 says, to be revealed as the sons of God, to be glorified with Christ. Uh, that's, that's everything. What are you in it for? What are you pursuing? How are you living your life? Is it for the portion of this world or is it conformity to Christ? And then lastly, point number three, you know, Genesis 36 is all about the genealogy of Esau. And here we see the fulfillment of Isaac's promise, his blessing on Esau. He was truly blessed. In Genesis 27, don't you have anything for me, Dad? Why is it all going wrong? Esau said unto his father, hast thou but one blessing? My father, bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac, his father, answered and said unto him, behold, thy dwelling shall be upon the fatness of the earth. You're gonna get rich. And the dew of heaven from above. And by the sword shalt thou live and shalt serve thy brother. And it shall come to pass, when thou shalt have the dominion, thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. And, and all of that happened in history. The problem is his descendants are messed up, multiple wives and concubines, and they hold a grudge against Israel. Uh, don't miss in the genealogy Amalek. Genesis 36, verse 12. And then you read about Amalek in Exodus 17. You read about Amalek in Numbers chapter 20 and Ezekiel 25. They hold a grudge against Israel, and it never works out. Esau is producing kings and dukes, right? Why? Because this is a family invested in pride. Pride of being lifted up on high. Pride in who they are in the flesh. Pride in their portion on this earth. You compare that to Genesis 46, how Jacob describes his family. There's no chieftain kings. There's no kings in my family. There's no dukes in my family. We're, we're humble shepherds. That's who we are. There's no kings in Israel until Saul in 1 Samuel chapter one. And then look how that worked out. I mean, he's almost a perfect type of antichrist, King Saul. Can I just end this way? Brother, sister, what are you in this life? What are you gaining? What are you going for? Is it to get your portion in this life? Or is it to awake with Christ's likeness? My counsel to you is small yourself. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. First Peter 5, verse six. Humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Some of you, you're all about that. You're all about being conformed. You're all about God sanctifying you, growing you, conforming you to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of you humbling yourself, God's greatly using you. Others of you, you were doing that, right? God was greatly using you, but then something happened that wounded your pride. God didn't do what you thought he should have done. It didn't work out the way that you thought you should have. You didn't get your portion. Something, something didn't work out for you. And as a result, 
right? I don't know, anywhere from you're mad at God, you're sucking your thumb over how your life isn't working out the way that you wanted. You're upset because Christians didn't treat you right. You're upset because you didn't get the portion that was due you. Brothers and sisters, don't think like that. Small yourself. If it pleases the king, if it pleases for the king for me to be ripped off every time I turn around, well then, that's his problem, right? My job is just to serve the king. My job is just to submit myself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever he decrees over my life, that's good. Because brothers and sisters, this is as close to hell as I'm ever gonna get. It will be worth it all when I see Jesus. I mean, one look at his face, every sorrow, every problem, every bellyache that I ever had in this world, it'll be erased. Man, praise the Lord. Can I pray for you? Let's humble ourselves, let's close our eyes. I wanna ask you to just examine your heart. Just look in your heart, okay? Where are you at with God? How many here would say, Pastor, I know I'm, I'm in the camp, I'm God's enemy right now. I'm, I, I'm not right with the Lord. I, I, I need to be saved. I need Christ as my Lord and Savior. I need to surrender my life to Christ. Pastor, would you pray for me? Is there anybody like that in the room this morning? I don't know that I'm saved. I know that if I died today, I'd be, a, I'd be separate from God for eternity in hell. Please pray for me. Is there anybody like that? I need, I need to be saved. I need to, I need to go to heaven. Yes, ma'am. Anybody else? Please pray for me. Yeah, okay, I see your hand. Anybody else? I'm only gonna wait a second. I, I just wanna know who I'm praying for. Okay, yep, I got you guys. Last call on that, okay? I, I, I know I'm, I need Christ in my life. Please pray for me. Okay, I'm gonna pray for you. How many would say, I know I'm saved, but I'm living like Esau. I'm, I'm living like this world is my portion, what I can get for myself out of this life, and it's, and it's in the way of my faith and my faithfulness to God. I need to repent. I need to rededicate my life to Christ. Pastor, would you pray for me? Is there anybody like that? in the room this morning, okay? Anybody else? Okay, so there's a few, okay. Father, I come to you today in Jesus' name, and Lord, uh, there's several here this morning. They're not saved, and outside of faith in your gospel, believing on Christ as their sin bearer, uh, in repentance of sin, and faith toward God, calling on the on you for the, the efficacy, the, the finished work of Christ over their life at Calvary. God, they'll go into a Christless eternity. And so God, I'm praying, just like your word says, that today is the day of salvation, that they'd not listen to the doubts, they'd not listen to the enemy whispering in their ear, that they would know that God, from the beginning, from the days of Adam all the way down to how you've been working in their life, you've been doing nothing but falling all over yourself to keep them out of an eternity separate from you. That God, you made them to, to love them. You made them to love you. That you made them to be with you as part of your family for all of eternity. God, I'm praying that today truly will be the day of salvation. And then Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who Lord, it's just so easy for us. We're like little kids, and we get our eyes on trinkets, and we get our eyes on, on, on resources and what they think, uh, what we think that they can do for us, and, and, and we get our eyes off of Christ, his glory, his kingdom. 
We get our eyes off of our service to him. And so, Lord, I'm praying that for us today would be a day of repentance, that today would be a day where we just humble ourselves under your mighty hand, we small ourselves, and we submit our lives to you afresh. Lord, I pray that today would be a day of of true rededication, true surrender, and that, Lord, we give our lives, we give our time, we give our resources, we give the whole of our families into just fulfilling your will, living your word over our lives. God, I pray that we'll do that to your glory and praise in Jesus' name, amen.